All right, I want you to turn to Matthew 5 and John 15. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and then put a marker at John chapter 15 and we'll flip over there in a moment. This is the last message in the series, Happiness Redefined. And we've taken this from the Beatitudes. And let me just remind you some things about the Beatitudes, all right? The Beatitudes are the introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus. The Beatitudes are also a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The last word of the Old Testament is cursed. The first word of the first sermon in the New Testament is blessed. But there's something else about the Beatitudes I want to remind you about. The Beatitudes are not wishes of Jesus. They are not hopes of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not wishing that the poor in spirit could be happy. He's not wishing that those who mourn would be happy. He's not wishing that the persecutor be happy. These are divine pronouncements of truth. Jesus being divine, speaking, that's truth. He is pronouncing that people who are poor in spirit are happy. That's what he's saying. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn and grieve over their sin. And so in our, our capsulation here of the Beatitudes, I want us to read all of the Beatitudes this morning, all right? So Matthew 5, just follow along with me, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed, and I'm going to substitute the word happy, because if you're just joining us on this series, the Greek word for blessed here is makarios, and it means happy. All right? Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who will humble themselves before God. Happy are those who mourn and grieve over their sin. We looked at that when we learned about that word. They shall be comforted or receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Happy are the meek, those who allow the Holy Spirit to control their responses. They shall inherit the earth or even have dominion over the flesh. We looked at that. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Happy are the merciful, people who show mercy to other people because they receive mercy. They shall obtain mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, or the ambassadors for Christ. They shall be called sons of God. And happy are those, here's the one for this week, and it actually takes up three verses, but it's one beatitude. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it begins with the phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and ends with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you, and now he's going to expound on this persecution Beatitude. Happy are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this has got to be the most paradoxical of all the Beatitudes. Happy are the persecuted. That's the title of the message. The persecuted are happy. This has got to be the most controversial one. Persecuted people are happy. Well, we need to figure out some things about persecution. You have to understand that this is at the beginning of his ministry. This is one of his first sermons he's ever preached. But he's already on the legalist radar screen. They've already picked him up 
that he's not following the rules and regulations and rituals that they think are so important. But the disciples haven't picked up on it yet. So this statement is really strange to them. Jesus is simply saying to them, let me tell you guys what's coming. You don't, you don't know what's coming. Well, let me tell you what's coming. If you live the Beatitudes, you're going to be persecuted. That's what he's telling the disciples. If you're poor in spirit, if you mourn over your sin, if you're pure in heart, if you're meek, if you're a peacemaker, you're going to be persecuted. He's warning them of what's to come. So let's talk about this and so we understand it more, right? So I have three questions for you. Number one, what is persecution? What is persecution according to the Bible? Well, I'm going to give you the Greek word definition here. But you need to understand that it's a long definition. In other words, it gives about nine different ways. It says the same thing, but in a different way. All right? So just follow me. And if you're taking notes, you might be able to just jot down one or two of these. But this is what the Greek word for persecute means. To persecute. It is to make someone to run. To put to flight. To drive away. To pursue in a hostile manner. To harass. To trouble to mistreat, to be hostile, to be accusative, to harass, to trouble, to drive a person away. Here's what Jesus is telling the disciples. It's about to get tough. You don't understand this. This hasn't happened to you before, but it happened to the prophets who were before you. It's going to happen to me, and it's going to happen to you too. See, we have this notion, in, and it's only in the West that, that this is preached anywhere in the world, but we have this notion that once you get saved, everything should just work out for you. You shouldn't have any problems once you get saved. And as a matter of fact, in the American church, we are shocked when we go through difficulties. We're shocked. We have a flat tire. We think we're being persecuted. It's immediately, we have a flat tire. It's the devil that did this to me. The devil, not the nail in the road, but the devil... Caused me to have a flat tire. Everywhere else in the world, they understand that if you live for Christ, you're going to suffer persecution. As a matter of fact, it's what the Bible teaches. Let me show you this verse, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all, and I've told you this before, but what's the Greek word for all mean? All, that's correct. <clears throat> all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How many? All who desire to live godly. In other words, let me say another word. All, another way, all who live the Beatitudes will suffer persecution. You know, there's a way that you don't have to suffer persecution. I, I heard about a man that got a new job, and it was at a, a, a very evil company. It was a, and they knew it was. And they, it was not, not, many, not any Christians at the company. And uh, they were evil. They did evil things. They told dirty jokes. And he and his wife, but he knew God led him to the company to take the job. And he and his wife prayed about it. And that morning as he left, they prayed together. And then she prayed all day for him. And when she got home, she said, well, how was it? And his response before he even thought was, actually, it was pretty good. I don't think they even know I'm a Christian. And he said, when I said the words, I was convicted. And I realized what the enemy had done. Now, several years later, many of the people at the company have become believers because of him. See, God doesn't want us to live under the radar screen. He, he, the devil would say, listen, just make it through. Don't cause any waves. Don't rock the boat. But that's not what we're here for. We're here to make a difference in this world. We are light and we are supposed to shine in a dark world. And if we do, we will be persecuted. 
Let me show you another scripture. Uh, now, this is a strange scripture, by the way. Okay, let me just tell you, it's a strange scripture. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted. This word means given as a gift. In other words, you've got this gift from God. Now, what's the gift that he gave you? It has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Gee, thanks. <laughs> thanks for granting us that gift, God. I mean, there it is right there in your Bible. So I want to ask you some questions. Are you being persecuted? Are you suffering for the gospel's sake? Or are you trying to be a secret agent for God? We have a young man in our church that uh, grew up in Tanzania. Grew up in a Muslim home, went to Muslim school. When he was 16 years old, some missionaries came from America and he heard the gospel for the first time. He knew about Jesus. He was actually taught in the Muslim faith that Jesus was the second highest prophet to ever live. Mohammed, obviously, in their faith, being the highest. He was not the Son of God, but he was a good man. He was a good prophet. But one thing that he was not taught was that Jesus died on a cross. Never taught that he was crucified. The reason he was never taught that is because if someone said Jesus died on the cross, the normal response would be, why? And the answer is, for your sins. And if Jesus died for your sin, you don't have to go to Mecca. You don't have to pray five times a day. You don't have to work for your salvation because it's been paid for. You just have to believe. So these American missionaries come. He's 16 years old. He hears the gospel for the first time, and he believes and accepts Jesus. Goes home excitedly and shares with his parents, and his parents said either Jesus or family. And he chose Jesus. And they kicked him out of his family. They had him leave home. For the next four years, he slept in a vineyard. He slept uh, in an orchard where he would pick uh, mang his mango trees or he'd pick fruit. Sometimes they would pay him, sometimes they wouldn't because since he wasn't a Muslim, he had no recourse. If he was a Muslim, they would have had to pay him. They didn't have to pay him. So many days he went without food. And four years later, the missionaries came back and God miraculously reconnected them. And they arranged for him to come to America and he graduated from the University of South Carolina. He is now in school, in seminary, learning to be a missionary to go back to his country, and I want you to meet him. His name is Ishmael. Ishmael, will you stand up? Ishmael Flamingo. Now, here's the thing I want to tell you about Ishmael. He's happy. You get around him just for a few minutes, and you'll know he's happy. Jesus said, happy are the ones who are persecuted for my sake. Did you know that America is the saddest nation on earth according to medical statistics? More depression, more suicide, more pills than any other nation on earth. And we've got a whole recipe here for happiness. Happiness is taking a stand for Jesus. That's what happiness is. So, let's ask another question. Where does persecution come from? We know what persecution is now. Where does it come from? Well, let me be very, very clear on this, and let me read you a scripture so you'll see. Psalm 143, verse 3. For the enemy, the enemy has persecuted my soul. Listen to me carefully. Salvation does not, I mean, persecution does not come from people. Persecution comes through people, but it comes from the devil. It is Satan who is persecuting us. See, if we didn't understand that it only comes through people and not from people, how else could Jesus have prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them? The ones who put him on the cross, the ones who were mocking him, reviling him, and saying all kinds of evil against him, and persecuting him, 
He forgave. The reason is because he knew that the persecution wasn't coming from them, but it was coming through them. There are two types of uh, people that it comes through, by the way. Legalistic people. Legalistic people will always persecute believers, true believers, because they want you to be able to earn it somehow. You can't earn it. That's what they were so mad with Jesus about, because he didn't say that you have to do all the law to get saved. He said, you just have to believe in me. This is the work. They said, tell us the works of God that we might believe. Here's his response. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he sent. They didn't like that. Matter of fact, Galatians tells us that the son of the free woman will always be persecuted by the son of the bond woman. That's talking about law and grace. Those who believe in grace will always be persecuted by those who believe in law. So legalistic people, persecution comes through them because Satan does not want the world to know that you just have to believe. He don't want the world to know that. He wants them to know it's tough. It's not tough. Here's the other uh, type of people persecution comes through. Lost people. Legalistic and lost people. Worldly people. You have to understand, if we live in a dark world, and we do, and if we're light in a dark world, then the darkness will persecute the light. That's what Jesus said. Light came into the world, and the darkness hated the light. Now, look at John chapter 15. Jesus tells us that this persecution will come through the world, and we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now I'm going to make an incredible statement to you here. You cannot live loving enough to not be persecuted. You can't live in a loving enough way to not be persecuted and to not be hated in this world. And let me tell you why. Because Jesus was the embodiment of love and they crucified him. So no matter how loving you live, darkness is going to persecute you. Again, persecution does not come from people. Don't get your eyes on people. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Persecution comes from the enemy. And the more loving you are, the more Satan hates you. Are you taking a stand for Christ? Have you ever been persecuted for the gospel's sake? By the way, it says, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Remember, righteousness is right standing with God. It only comes through grace, so that's the gospel. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It doesn't say happy are those who are persecuted for stupid's sake. Because some of us have gotten some persecuted... But it wasn't persecution, but it was just our own fault. Would you, will you take a stand for the gospel? Let, let's, let me give you some analogies. Let's say that you lived in Bible days, and your profession was a, a stone mason. You, you made things out of stone. And you'd been through a recession, gas prices were high, or fossil fuel, whatever you want to say, was high, and... Um, uh, uh, Things were going bad economically, and all of a sudden you got a contract to build a temple for a false god. And it was a very, very lucrative contract. And if you did a good job, you'd get some more contracts. Would you do it? Let's say that you were a, a tailor, and uh, you made clothes, and you got a contract to... Make the robes for all the priests of Baal, 450 of them. 
And uh, if you did well, you could probably make some more. Let's say you got invited to a, a festival, a, a, a feast, a festival for a, an idol. But all of the important business people are going to be there. And uh, you kind of explained to your spouse, honey, you just don't understand the way business works. You have to go to these things to be able to meet the people and get the business. You just don't understand. Would you go? Now, I gave you all those analogies from Bible days just to help you understand. And I want you now to bring it up to modern day. Where are you? In your company, your business, your profession, your school. What, what kind of a stand have you made for Christ? Are you suffering persecution for the gospel? We continue to try to reach people with the gospel. We could get comfortable. We have this uh, 180-something acres over here. We don't need to build a, a bigger building for more people to be able to get saved. We could, um, we could just build a commune over there. We could all live together, put a fence around it. Get us some guns. <laughs> I'm not trying to make light of some situations that have actually been very, very horrible. I'm simply trying to say we could make a choice to live under the radar screen as a church. We could say we're not going to get persecuted and we're comfortable where we are, you know. Or we could say, no, we are going to sacrifice and we are going to extend the kingdom of God on this earth. And we've got to make that commitment. We're going to populate heaven, and we're going to plunder hell. And every one of us are going to make a difference where we are. In order, listen to the statement, in order to make a difference in the world, you have to be different. That's a good statement, by the way. In order to make a difference in the world, you have to be different because God called us out of the world. And if we live godly, we're going to suffer persecution. But here's the great thing. Happy are the persecution. So here's the... Here's the third question I want to ask you. What's the reward of persecution? Well, again, this beatitude is three verses. It's the only beatitude that has three verses, but it's one beatitude. But there's a double reward. It's all about persecution, but there's a double reward and a double blessing. Double happiness. In other words, people who are persecuted for the gospel are twice as happy. So, let me tell you the reward. One is for on earth and one is in heaven. Here's the one that's on earth. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Here's the way Luke puts that. Jump for joy. That's what the Greek word actually means. Leap for joy. In other words, people who are persecuted for the gospel are incredibly happy people. They are joyful. They have a joy that is unspeakable and they're full of glory. That's the way Paul put it. Paul said we're, we're, we're persecuted, but we're not cast down. We're not destroyed. We're not sad about it. As a matter of fact, we are happy. The first time that the disciples were scourged or whipped, beaten for the gospel, it says they left excited and happy because they were deemed worthy to suffer for Jesus. There is a joy that we can't even describe if we're persecuted, if we'll make a stand. Happy are the persecuted. Is it possible we're not happy because we're not persecuted? And is it possible we're not persecuted because we're not taking a stand? Let me show you one more scripture. About a guy in Scripture, the very first martyr. Because it says, great is your reward in heaven. Acts 7, verse 54. Stephen, talking about Stephen. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, that's extremely important. Here's what I want to say. First of all, I believe people who are persecuted have a clearer picture of Jesus than any other people. They see God very, very clearly. They see the glory and the hand of God in their lives. But also, he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. This is the only time in the New Testament Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. Every other time he's seated. Here's what I see in that. Stephen, being the first martyr of the church, got a standing ovation from Jesus. And he saw it. Great is your reward in heaven. See, we, we do have a problem in the West also in that we live for now and not for eternity. And believers all over the world are being martyred to this day for eternity, for the gospel's sake. We do something every year uh, at the end of this month, actually, Memorial Day, and we should do this. We should do it more than once a year, actually. We honor the memory of the men and women who gave their lives so we could have freedom in this country. We should do that. I'm not using this analogy in opposition to what I'm about to say. I'm using it in support of what I'm about to say. We should do that. But let me tell you what else we should do. We should also honor the men and women who have died for us to have freedom in Christ. All over this world, there have been martyrs. As a matter of fact, look at the Bible that you have in your hand. And maybe if you don't have one with you today, think about the Bible you have in your home. You know why you have this Bible? Because some men and women died so you could have a copy of the Bible. A couple in particular I'll tell you about, William Tyndale. William Tyndale, in the 16th century, the only Bible they had was in Latin and it was in the hands of the priest. He wanted every person to have a Bible in the English language. So he learned Greek so he could translate the New Testament. He translated the New Testament and then he began to ship New Testaments back, smuggled them back into England in sacks of grain. He had to leave the country because he was deemed a heretic. As a matter of fact, he was arguing with a priest one day. And the priest was saying to him, the people don't need the Bible. They, don't, they can't understand the Bible. They don't need the Bible. And here's what he said to him. He says, as a matter of fact, the only thing they need is the law of the Pope. The law of the Pope is higher than the law of God. That's what the priest said. Uh, William Tyndale made a comment, and I have a, a statue that kind of commemorates that. He talked about a plowboy. Let me show you a picture of the statue. This is in my home. Someone gave me this. And it shows a plowboy stopping from plowing to read the Bible. And that was unheard of because nobody had a copy of the Bible. And when the priest said, it'd be more important for the people to have the law of the Pope than the law of God or the Word of God, William Tyndale responded, here was the quote, it's written on the side of that statue, If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou dost. In other words, he said, I want to get to the place where the people know the Bible even better than you do. And the people that, uh, friends of mine, gave me that statue because they said it reminded us of you because you're always wanting the people to read the Word of God and to study the Word and to know the Word. William Tyndale, then after he uh, translated the New Testament, he translated the first five books of the Old Testament. He learned Hebrew. He was not a Hebrew scholar, but he learned Hebrew. Many of the English words that we have, William Tyndale came up with. Jehovah. Jehovah is not a Hebrew word. Yahweh is the Hebrew word. And Adonai. And he took the consonants from Yahweh, Y-W-H-W, and he took the vowels from Adonai, and he came up with the English word Jehovah. The word Passover. 
It's not a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is uh, peace or something like that. He took that Hebrew word and came with the word Passover, the night God passed over. The angel of death passed over. Uh, atonement, at one with. Those are English words that we all know today that William Tyndale came up with. So he translated the first five books of the Old Testament and then the book of Jonah. And then they found him. They brought him to England, tied him to a stake, and said, will you renounce the word of God? He said, no. And they burned him at the stake. John Rogers was a Hebrew scholar. He knew Hebrew. So he began, he took Tyndale's Bible and he began translating the rest of the Old Testament that he hadn't translated yet from the Hebrew into English. He did it under a surname, Thomas Matthews, so that he wouldn't get caught. We have the earliest uh, English really form of the Bible would be the Matthews Tyndale Bible, we call it. Queen Mary came into the office. Henry VIII began to get kind of lenient toward it, and so he actually took the Matthews Tyndale Bible and put it in the churches, but he had it chained to the altar. (laughs) So nobody could take it home with them. Mary came into office. She was only there. She was the queen for five years, Queen Mary I. Many of you don't realize she was the worst uh, person toward the church that there ever could have been. She martyred hundreds of people, all Bible translators. Bible preachers. Uh, it's actually where we get the term Bloody Mary. If you've ever heard that term, it came from Queen Mary I from 1553 to 1558. But the first one she wanted to kill was John Rogers. She put out a worldwide search for him and found him in Geneva where he was translating the Bible. He'd just finished, though, the translation. She brought him back, had him tried as a heretic. Here's the interesting thing, though, about the reporter that wrote the story on it. He said while he was walking to the stake, his wife and children were walking beside him. And this is what he said. There was such joy in the family as I've never seen before. It appeared as if they were going to a wedding instead of a funeral. They tied him to the stake, gave him one last chance to renounce the Bible. He wouldn't do it. And before he could even answer, though, they said, will you renounce the Bible? His son cried out. Don't do it, Dad. Don't do it. And they burned him at the stake. Great is his reward in heaven. I'm wondering if we are willing today in this country to be persecuted for the gospel. Happy are the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes.